This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for Episode 59 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Each year, Verizon publishes their Data Breach Investigation Report, or DBIR. It's their annual survey of the state of cybersecurity, using data gathered from tens of thousands of incidents from around the world. It's earned a reputation as a must-read report for its thoroughness and approachability. Mark Spittler is a senior manager of Verizon Security Research and one of the lead authors of the report. He joins us to share the -the behind-the-scenes story of what goes into the DBIR, how his team chooses this year's hot topics, and how they protect their efforts from undue influence. Stay with us. I think with a lot of people, around my age at least, it it didn't start with a computer science degree or, you know, you know, majoring in information security in any way, shape or form. Uh, But coming out, that was really where the job market was taking us. That's where I think some of the uh, that's where a lot of interesting things were happening. And this is really in the area of uh, information technology. So I started out working my way up through a organization that provided support for firewalls. So I'd be on the phones with uh, customers, uh, walking them through configuration issues, connectivity issues, et cetera. From there, um, even though I was working on firewalls, I wouldn't really consider myself a security expert because it was really more of a system administration role. But uh, went from there into you know other network engineering and then kind of came back to security when the opportunity presented itself. And I started doing uh, security consulting, working with organizations, kind of walking them through, you know, activities that would uh, you know, increase their security posture, get them moving, uh, act as a little bit of a staff aug for them, and then eventually transitioned. And then, you know, I was working for small companies during that time. Uh, we were acquired by Verizon. I've been with Verizon now since 2007. And I transitioned into uh, this group, the one uh, responsible for uh, security research and, and notably the, the data breach investigations report, uh, I believe about 2010. So as you were making your way up through uh, from job to job and, and taking on those new skills, was it mostly a, a matter of, of on-the-job training or were you going outside for additional training or were you able to get what you needed at work? No, it was it was certainly I wouldn't say a baptism by fire, but it was definitely on the job training, um, you know, taking skill sets that you have and uh, applying them to the new area. But at the same time, you know, learning uh, new skills as you go. Uh, so it was yeah, certainly a lot of on the job training. I owe a lot to um, peers uh, that helped me out, uh, certainly uh, coming from a non-technical uh, background and 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 learning things like TCP IP and Unix and <laughs> things yeah. like that. So um, that was all on the job training and, um, and, and it was all really done from a kind of a, a mentor standpoint where people would uh, take uh, juniors underneath their wing, uh, train them up, test them, uh, certify them to the next level, and then the cycle could repeat itself. So it was, uh, I am very, very appreciative of the opportunities afforded to me uh, because of those types of relationships. It's an interesting story, and it makes me wonder, how does that experience inform, as a senior leader now, how you go through the hiring process? 
Well, obviously, you have to take a look at you know what are what are the needs uh, that you have, and you try to find someone who either a uh, has the ability currently to be able to fit right in, um, and that is almost utopian. More often than not, I think it's it's more of b someone that has a good foundation and can be trained up and can work, especially with my team. I have a very small team, uh, so we have to be very close-knit. Uh, we have to be very efficient. Um, so we need someone that can work in that team environment, uh, that can learn quickly, that can absorb, um, and then can also be a self-starter and be able to learn quickly and then, and then start rolling with it, start applying what they've learned uh, extremely fast. I want to talk about the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report, the DBIR, certainly one of the most respected reports in the industry. Um, can you walk us through what the history of that report is and how you approach it today? Sure. Now, I wasn't around from the very, very beginnings, but I know the history quite well. I was with Verizon at the time, and really back in 2008, we recognized that there, were, uh, there was a lot of opinions uh, in the information security space a lot of people making names for themselves, uh, n- not necessarily in a bad way, but also a lot of organizations and companies that are just trying to sell product. So it was a booming industry, and a lot of what people were being fed um, didn't have really any science behind it. It didn't have any real-world facts. It, didn't have, it wasn't data-driven. It was more dogma-driven. And it was, oh, my goodness, wouldn't it be awful if this happened to you style of reporting or uh, blogging, if you will, whatever whatever the medium was, we realized that we there was a void there, and we also had a treasure trove of real world case reports from our forensics investigators that could be hired on retainer or on demand to put boots on the ground and respond to organizations if they've had a data breach or they felt they've had a data breach. And they can do some of that investigative forensic work for them. Uh, provide them, you know, a case report. Here's what happened. These, these are the things that we looked at. These are the things that we found. And so we had years of these reports. And that's exactly the type of information that people needed. What's what's really happening to people in the real world? How are people being breached? What methods are being used? Who's who's doing it? Why are they doing it? Uh, what can we do about it? We pitched the ideas, and we we finally got people like the lawyers on our side because you know it's sensitive information. It's not one. It's not something people are just going to be. Uh, to green light and say, yeah, go for it. We spoke at length about how we were going to sanitize the data, how it was going to be discussed in aggregate, and how we wouldn't be talking about individual breaches. We didn't then, we don't now. Um, and that really built up the first report that came out in 2009. It was four years of data, all from a single source. We did that, and then we um, started working with the Secret Service, and we built a relationship with them, and they started to provide us their case notes, um, pre-sanitized, to where we didn't know who the victim was, but we knew some of the details that were of interest to us and, and were actionable to the to the readers, which would be, again, general demographic information. What were the steps of the attack? What what did the attacker do? Who, who was the attacker? What was their motive? Uh, what assets were affected? And through the Secret Service, we started expanding a little bit more and found some other law enforcement agencies. And here we are, um, you know, the 11th year, uh, we have 67 different contributing groups. Uh, many of them are Verizon. So you know, we still have our investigative response team that's providing us data. We we have our uh, denial of service mitigation team that is uh, providing us data. But the majority of them 
uh, are external in nature. So still a lot of law enforcement, uh, a lot of certs, um, domestic and international, uh, other forensics investigators, cyber insurers, pretty much anybody that can provide us um, solid data where we're certainly willing to have a conversation with. And we've even extended it beyond the uh, what I call the bread and butter data breach or security incident uh, case data. We've worked with other security vendors, uh, ones that specialize in security awareness training. So that that is what uh, underpins any of the statistics that we have as far as uh, phishing and click rates. We've worked with you know malware uh, defense vendors, and you know we get a lot of really solid information about malware. We get it obviously from what happens in the real world breaches and incidents, but we're also able to combine that with what's happening on successful malware detonations. And it, I think it tells a really strong story about you know what malware looks like, where it's coming from, uh, what file types it's 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 coming in as, and uh, really truly pro- provides some uh, information that the readership could actually can actually use. They they can they can they can take action with it, which is what we're really trying to do with the report. Yeah, it always strikes me when I read the report how approachable it is. Um, And and I'm wondering, uh, can you describe to us, how does your team work together? What's the collaborative process for coming up with a report every year? How do you decide what makes the cut, what doesn't? Is there, uh, do people, uh, you know, pitch different ideas? How does it work? We really let the data tell the story. And that ultimately will determine where the areas of focus are. So in this year's report, we had a section on social engineering. We've had it for two straight years because the data was really showing us that there's a strong prevalence of of using social engineering in the forms of phishing, uh, as well as pretexting by cyber criminals. Uh, It's an important thing. (laughs) So um, ransomware, Uh, we've had sections on ransomware the last two years because in our data set, uh, it, it had increased in size at such a rate that it really necessitated us talking about it a lot more than just a quick blurb here or a quick blurb there. Um, also, if we if we have new, interesting data that we bring in that looks at something a different way, this would probably be more in that non-incident data that I was talking about. We'll certainly try to use that uh, in some form or fashion. We're always trying to enrich uh, the, the breach and incident corpus. And that still is really the main goal of the report. We do try to look for new ways of discussing it. And if we can bring in a different data set that shines light in an area that we haven't seen before, we'll certainly utilize it. But as far as like what are our talking points, that's really going to be dictated by whatever the data tells us. And if it is something similar to the prior year, so be it. Uh, <laughs> we, you know, we're, we're, we're there to be a very, uh, we, we like to make it easy to read. And we like to throw in pop culture references and little Easter eggs here and there. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's it's all about the data and what's happening in the real world. And if something happened last year and is still occurring this year, that's still a finding. And that's what we're going to present out to uh, to the readers and to the public. As the leader of the team and uh, heading up that project within Verizon, how do you protect that process? You know, how do you? I, I can I can imagine, uh, you know, hypothetically that you know the the, the folks from uh, Verizon's marketing department might wander over from time to time and say, uh, "Hey, wouldn't it be great if you could include this?" You know, but how do you protect yourselves from those sort of internal pressures to to maybe turn the report or or, or channel the report in directions that would take away from its purity? 
Luckily, the, those aren't battles that I've had to have, you know, long drawn out wars about. I think that everybody realizes exactly what this report is and how useful it can be in its current state. Um, obviously, 11 years ago, it was it was outstanding for Verizon to put out a report like this because we were still, you know, really uh, m- m- trying to make a name for ourselves. And hey, we you know, we, we offer all of these security services. We are a player in this space. We've got an, uh, an enormous amount of talent behind us, but we weren't, you know, the Verizon was not synonymous with, you know, security services. It was certainly, you know, the can you hear me now guy still. And so it, it, I think it was a great way to evangelize our capabilities, our talent, our services it still is. And I think that because of the way, and this is this is what I really like about our our report is that it is built upon so many people coming together, so many different organizations coming together to trust me and my team with their data. Uh, granted, it is anonymized um, when we get it, but still, there's a high level of trust there. And I think anything that that we did with the report that would erode that trust would be the end of the report. You know, it would be it would, it would not be well received. Um, it would not be well received by our contributors. And I think everybody has that understanding um, that you know what makes this report great is that we we don't inside the report itself make it you know all about you know marketing ourselves or uh, any any of our partners' products. We'll certainly recommend technologies and practices within the report. That's when salespeople from our organization and others can leverage that in order to, uh, you know, try to, uh, to evangelize what they're doing. And, and if you walk, you know, if you walk along the, you know, you see security presentations, it's, it's, it's often quoted and that's great. Uh, you walk around RSA, you'll see it quoted on, on booths and that's absolutely fine as well. You know, we're hoping that it is, uh, it is a rising tide that raises all sales, but you know we're researchers. Our our main goal is to be able to uh, to provide something good you know, out to the public that can be used and helps out the security ecosystem. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about threat intelligence. Um, and I'm curious, you know, what you what your take is on the role of threat intelligence for companies looking to protect themselves. Sure. Um, now, my area is more of the strategic threat intelligence, more of kind of trends and, mm-hmm. you know, what, what type of uh, actions are these adversaries doing? What is, uh, you know, what paths are they taking? Uh, that type of thing. And I believe that is very important. And then you also have to, on the other side of the coin, you have to start, you know, we, and I think we are as an industry as a whole, um, t- you know, leveraging tactical threat intelligence and, you know, having an understanding of, you know, what are bad, you know, what are the bad domains? What are, you know, where, what, what your egress traffic, where is it going? What type of neighborhoods is it traveling to? Um, you know, what other things are we seeing? You know, uh, all of, you know, everything from what's the latest phishing campaign that is targeting your industry to what is the latest piece of malware that's coming out uh, to, you know, what is the known infrastructure of the groups that are, you know, targeting your industry? Um, all of that uh, has to come into play, and it all has to be packaged in such a way to where it's digestible. It's one thing to be able to collect all of it. Um, it's another thing to be able to, to synthesize it and analyze it and actually uh, be able to make that decision of what action do I need to take based on uh, this alert or this notification. As far as the, what I really like about threat intelligence is how it lends itself to uh, data sharing. 
And certainly data sharing is is close to our heart because it's it's really one of the things that allows us to make our report what it is, is be able to, being able to collect data from various sources and being able to kind of aggregate that out together and produce something that's better than the sum of its parts. I think with uh, threat intelligence, it's, it's a similar thing as you're able to build upon expertise of other organizations that are specializing this, um, but also within regional you know, uh, industry uh, data sharing groups like ISACs. It's all part and it's really becoming not really a, a bleeding edge a security control anymore, but I think it's just now established as itself as, uh, you know, it's another layer. It's another piece in our, you know, defense in depth to to use a security cliche, but it, but it makes sense. It's just one of those things uh, that can be used uh, to help defend and really detect. Our data is showing that we are doing a pretty poor job as far as detecting uh, compromises when they happen. You know, if someone gets hit with a piece of malware and that malware tries to communicate out, but because you have that that intelligence, um, you know, however you've collected it, and you know that that's going to a, a you know a domain or an IP address that is questionable in nature, and you can do the investigation, you can determine that something did happen, that you've had a security incident, but it wasn't able to manifest itself and it wasn't able to grow into a high impact data breach that is still needs to be considered a security win uh, for the good guys. And so that's certainly uh, one area where, where threat intelligence does come into play. I'm curious, with the view that you have on this data and seeing how the, doing the report and seeing how things evolve year to year, are there any things that kind of leave you scratching your head where, where you say, gosh, you know, if, if only we did this, we'd have a better handle on this? Well, <laughs> That, that that moment uh, came in 2011. Uh, so for those that are on this, that are that are veteran readers of the report, uh, back then we would put a little bit more focus on number of records lost. We don't do that as much anymore for several reasons. Uh, but back then, you know, the the majority of the cases that came in were of the payment card variety. So some some form or fashion, you know, compromising payment cards. Um, for obvious reasons, it's it's monetizable. People like money. Bad guys like money. And you know, we we'd count them in the millions and be like a hundred and whatever million. And you know, this year, oh, okay, it was seventy million. And then I think it was the, I'm pretty sure it was the 2011 report. It was four million. And we were like, okay, wait, what? <laughs> and so we we started looking back again, looking you know, look. And this is this is back when we had a few resources of data, so it was a little easier to do. But we we started looking back and. And we're just scratching our heads. And, you know, there, we went and asked other people, uh, scoured, you know, open source uh, intelligence, you know, and, and, and we did discern like, OK, there, there really wasn't, uh, you know, to our knowledge, a, you know, one of those mega breaches that would really inflate these numbers. Uh, I think we're OK here. But that was that was one of those things that just really threw us for a loop. Like, did we did we miss something? That was the one time we really felt like. We've just completely overlooked a a major event, or um, you know, a couple um, sizable events that that have really brought this down. But uh, you know, ultimately, we we were confident in the data that we had, um, still are. Now, coming back to today, what what is interesting to me, you know, one of the things that I I, I kind of beat my head um, against a wall about is where I still am getting cases that are being reported uh, as confirmed data breaches that involve. Things like lost laptops, um, you know, specifically within the healthcare industry, uh, where they where they have they have such stringent uh, disclosure requirements. 
you know, I talked about threat intelligence as not being, you know, so bleeding edge anymore and, and really something that everybody should start to embrace. Certainly full disk encryption is not a bleeding edge security uh, control anymore and is something that should be implemented now. <laughs> and I, you know, it's one of those things where this is, this is a very easy fix. It's a, it's a direct control that would solve that problem. That problem being that you have to disclose, you know, a lost device if it's not encrypted and you implement it, be able to uh, prove evidence of implementation and you can not have to disclose, you know, it doesn't, it, it won't, I won't know about it. If you do that, <laughs> you know, I, right. you know and no, I, no difference to the user either. Yeah, none. Um, and then I guess lastly, talking a little bit about payment cards again in industries, we certainly have had our fair share of what we call point of sale intrusions over the years. Um, so th these are adversaries that are uh, typically um, using stolen or uh, guessable passwords to get uh, remote access into point of sale environments. Uh, from there, they will install malware uh, that will you know, collect payment card information while it's still in running memory, and you know, and then we, can, we know the story from there. They're they're cashing out, they're they're committing fraud on that, and we are seeing that continuing to see that with an extreme prevalence in the accommodation industry, hotels and food service restaurants, but we're not seeing it as much in our data set with retailers, uh, brick and mortar retailers. And I don't know why. <laughs> I am hoping, hmm. um, you know, that the retailers have done the right things. They've strengthened authentication. Um, they've worked with, you know, third-party point-of-sale uh, vendors. They've done the right things to make themselves not be, you know, one of the slower gazelles out there. But it was just one of those things where I still would have expected to see some, you know, some of the smaller ones uh, end up in our corpus, but, but we haven't for whatever reason. So that's one that, that, that I'm scratching my head on. I'm hoping it's because they're doing the right thing. But at the same time, our data is, I think, well diversified, but it is still a sample. So it's not every single thing that happened to every single person in the prior year. And I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping it's not a, a just for whatever reason that it's being underreported. I want to wrap up with you, and, and I want to get your take on advice for that person who's coming up and is hoping to find their place in the industry. Maybe they're coming up through school or uh, thinking about switching careers. With everything that you've seen, uh, what would your advice be for that person? Well, um, I think, you know, if they're just coming out of school, just kind of come out with the, the understanding that you're still going to be essentially in school, that you're going to be yeah, a lot of your time. Uh, in the workforce, is especially in those early years, is going to be learning. So, kind of have that mindset that you are still a student, um, albeit um, you know, hopefully a paid one, as kind of a junior member in the information security space. You know, one of the things is you you want to try to learn from as many people as you can, uh, but have an understanding that you're you're never going to know it all. And one of the things that people talk about a lot in, in our industry is the imposter syndrome where, you know, oh, my goodness, that person's so much smarter than me because they know this, you know, and, I, and that's something I think everybody struggles with. I'm not a, I'm not a pen tester. Uh, I'm not a hacker. Uh, so even I, I will be intimidated a lot uh, by the folks that, that are the red teamers that have done the things that are writing these scripts and reverse engineering malware but, you know, at the end of the day, you need to have an understanding of, you know, you'll, you'll find your place, you'll find what it is. There's a lot of different things that you can do within information security. 
um, with very various levels of technicality required, various levels of business acumen required. And it's all about finding your place, finding a, a good team to work with, finding a place where you can learn, where you can grow. And you know, if there's something that you don't know about and it isn't necessarily pertinent to, to where you're going, it's, it's okay to not know. Um, that's where you got to rely on someone else that has that area of expertise because it's, it's, it's never this one security person doing something alone or knowing everything that's going to solve everybody's problems. It's going to be it's going to be working with people that that specialize in different areas and combined providing value and doing the right things and defending your organization or uh, whatever it is within information security that you're doing. Our thanks to Mark Spittler from Verizon for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.